What we've been saying for the last couple of months is that Genesis is like the acorn of the Bible. That what we find in Genesis in seed form will grow out through the rest of the Bible. And in Genesis, we'll see every major doctrine throughout the rest of the Bible contained in a small form, and like I said, it, it grows from there. In this flood narrative, we'll see rejection of God, the judgment of God, and the mercy of God. That'll be our hour. And we'll see the rejection of God, the judgment of God, and the mercy of God. And all of it tied up into four simple words. It's just this. Holiness matters to God. Holiness matters to God. So let me pray one more time for us as we continue in God's word that he would open up our eyes to see it and our ears to hear it and open up our heart to see where we need to change. Pray those things for yourselves as I pray aloud. God, we, gracious, we humbly come before your word and ask you to be gracious to us. Graciously open our eyes that we may see the truths of your word. Open our ears that we may hear the truths of your word and open up our hearts. Give us a humble heart to receive it and be changed by it. To confess our sins and be changed into the likeness of your son, Jesus. We pray it in your name. Amen. We get started this morning with our first point, the rejection of God. Right there at the beginning of chapter 6, you saw that. Walk through several points. I hope that you'll uh, just keep your Bibles open as we'll go back to it very frequently throughout. Look back at verse 2. We read, The sons of God saw that the daughters of man were attractive, and they took as their wives any they chose. Now, there's a whole litany of interpretations of what exactly is meant by that, and I'm happy to talk afterwards to do a deep dive on those, but there is one thing that they all have in common. What is exceedingly clear is that mankind began overstepping the boundaries God had set out. They began defining the good based on what looked good to them instead of what God said to do. That's the core principle there. They began to define the good based on what looked good to them instead of what God said. This led then, verse 6, look down. We read, and the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth, and it grieved him to his heart. It tells us that men had rejected God, and God desired fellowship with man. It grieved him to his heart. Now, sometimes we, we read those phrases, God regretted this, and you wonder, did God actually change his mind? I mean, friends, be clear, the Bible from beginning to end is, is really clear that God never changes. It's the same yesterday, today, and forever. But what happens in a passage like Genesis 6 is God condescends to us and communicates in a way that we can understand. To say, when you have rejected me, gone your own way, defined the good based on what looks good to you instead of what I've said, it grieves my heart because I want to be in a relationship with you. Like any loving father would see their kids making bad decisions, see their kids making choices that destroy themselves, bring destruction on their life, and destroy all of their relationships. That father would say, I'm grieved. That's what God is telling us here. 
Verse five, we look back at and gives us kind of an overview of this rejection of God. We read, the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Well, I don't know if you could be more comprehensive if you tried. He looked down, saw the wickedness was great, that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Now, there's a whole bunch of words that are used there, but notice we're not even talking in the realm of behaviors here. Intentions, thoughts, motivations, everything about mankind has gone wicked, is what we're told. Skip down just a couple of verses. Look at verse 11, and we get more of a description here. Violence is going to be the key thing that you see repeated here in verse 11. Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight, and the earth was filled with violence. Down to verse 13. God said to Noah, I have determined to make an end of all flesh, for the earth is filled with violence through them. In other words... Mankind was commissioned to bring order out of the chaos, to bless the created order, and instead, they've brought violence and chaos. Now, it's been at least 1,500 years now from Adam to Noah, and you've got this continual rejection of God, and if you're into investments at all, you know the great power of compounding interest, Well, the power of compounding interest in your 401k is exactly what you see here in the wickedness of man, compounding wickedness for 1,500 years, right? They say you get started with a retirement deal when you're 25, and over 40 years, you'll be in good shape. Imagine that for 1,500 years of compounding wickedness. The picture that we get is, is, is like a tornado raging through all the earth. Except it's not tornadoes as we fathom them or think of them. Imagine a 10-mile-wide tornado and the destruction that comes from that. That's the destruction that humanity is bringing on itself. Government has not yet been instituted. And so it's like living in a time where you've got Putin, Hitler, and Genghis Khan all being the biggest bullies in town all the time, everywhere. And there's everyone fleeing because violence has filled the earth. It's a terrible time to be alive. And so because of this, the sheer terror of the world in which we're living, they were living, God issues a warning. Look back at verse 3. Then the Lord said, My spirit shall not abide in man forever, for he is flesh. His days shall be 120 years. Uh, Some would say that's talking about human lifespans, 120 years. That's that's not the case. After this word was given, many humans lived well over 120 years. What God is saying is, I'm going to give a 120-year period here where you can repent, turn away from your wickedness, turn back to me. It is an exceedingly gracious offer when you consider the magnitude of the destruction, the magnitude of the wickedness, to give a 120-year time to turn back. And what's easy for us to do is it's easy, I think, for us to read a section like this and try to place ourselves in that period of history and think of ourselves as running from those people. 
Isn't that kind of how we think about this? Like, man, there were all these terrible people there. Like, where would I run and hide from them? Friends, let me just remind you, that's not a Christian way to read the Bible or to think about the Bible. Why not? Because you would have been those people. And I would have been those people. We're not reading about the wickedness of somebody else here. We're reading about the wickedness that lives in every single human heart. This is what theologians call the doctrine of total depravity, that you are completely corrupt to your core. It's what all humans are. It doesn't mean you've acted out every possible wicked thing. No, it's like saying every fiber of your being is marked by sin. It's as if you come with a serial number on you that communicates two things. One, you're made in the image of God to represent and reflect him, and two, you are totally depraved. I think of it this way. If you're out uh, just having a regular conversation and you say thank you to somebody and they immediately respond with my pleasure, what does that tell you? Yeah, it tells you Chick-fil-A. Chick-fil-A is in their DNA, down to their core. They can't even shake it when they're not in the drive-thru line. To their core, in every situation, that's what they are. What's the human way? Rebellion against God in service of myself, whatever the cost. It's in your core, no matter how happy the appearance might look, no matter what church service you go to, that is deep in every single one of our hearts. And it's so easy for us to say, no, that's not me. That's the politicians. That's the other political party. That's the other ethnicity. That's the other company that takes you know, the shortcut all the time and doesn't deliver on their promises. That's somebody else. Friend, even if you're in Christ, there's still sin in your heart that you do not know about. That's why the prophet Jeremiah, chapter 17, would say the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can know it? The implication being not even you know how sick your heart is. It's not a fun thought to dwell on, but it's what Genesis 6 tells us about ourselves, and we would do well to listen carefully and look inward and ask for grace. This is why Paul Tripp would helpfully write on this topic. Listen to what Dr. Tripp says. He says, spiritually blind people are not only blind, they are blind to their own blindness. They're blind, but they think that they see well. So the spiritually blind person walks around with the delusion that no one has a more accurate view of him than he does. He thinks he sees and is unaware of the powerfully important things in his heart that he absolutely does not see at all. Friends, this is why it's so critical that we commit to a local church, that we grow through relationships, because in isolation, you will bring yourself to destruction. We walk with brothers and sisters. We link arms together. We pray for one another because we need each other's help to grow. Christianity is not a solo sport. <laughs> and it's also why in the book of Proverbs chapter four, the Proverbs would say, ponder the path of your feet. Because you can look ahead to Genesis six and see rampant destruction and wickedness everywhere and say, how do people get there? You don't one day wake up and say, man, I would like to be an evil despot. Never starts that way. 
It's one slow step along the way. Small step here, small step there. Proverbs 4, ponder the path of your feet. The step you take today, where will that be in 10 steps, in 100 steps, and 1,000 steps? One of my mentors in college had a phrase that has always stuck with me, and it's, uh, he would say, little things make big things happen. Little things make big things happen. It's just a way of expounding upon, ponder the path of your feet. And some of you have been on, you know, various teams, whether uh, it's a a, a band or a choir, or you've been part of a a musical or a drama or a sports team, and and oftentimes there's rules that you adopt as a team to say, man, we want to be this kind of a team. We want to move in this direction. So this this mentor of mine, he was a basketball coach, and we had these rules for our team that said, man, we're going to ponder the path of our feet, and we're going to recognize that these are externals. They don't change our heart. But it's important to develop habits that lead us in the right direction. So we had some rules. We had a rule you had to sit in the first three rows of the classroom. Because if you sit in the back, that'd make you a bad person. You're just more likely to not get as much out of the class as you can. If you're in the back three rows of the church, I'm not judging you, I promise, this morning. It was really funny. There was one time a kid got caught in the back. Our coach literally walked into class and picked up him in his entire desk and carried him to the front row and sat him like, no, this is important. We had rules that the captains always did the laundry. Like, man, you wanna have some leadership? You wanna play the most? You wanna score the points? Yeah, you go serve, because we wanna be marked by service. Ponder the path of your feet. Little things make big things happen. It might sound extreme to you. We had a rule you couldn't get off of the sidewalk. You couldn't cut corners on the grass, because if you start cutting corners in little things, you'll cut corners in bigger things. Like, sure, you could be pharisaical. Sure, you can be legalistic. Don't go there. But ponder the path of your feet, because nobody ends up in a Genesis 6 situation where there's wickedness rampant on purpose. You get there one small step at a time. So I would ask you this morning, what are simple daily habits of grace that you can cultivate? Yes, you can be legalistic about Bible reading, but there's only one book in the entire world that's living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword. There's only one book that contains the holy, inspired words of God. So commit to the daily habit of grace, of being in God's word. The daily confession of sin because I just read to open the service, John 1, 5, the light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. As I bring sin into the light before God and fellow brothers and sisters, it exposes it and it chases it away. Commit to that habit of grace. Maybe people tell you at a prayer request and it's easy to say, I'll pray for you, but just make it a daily habit. I'm gonna stop and pray for them right now and I'm gonna jot myself a note, either in my phone or on a piece of paper, but a daily habit of grace that I can have genuine love for one another. By this, all men will know that you're my disciples if you love one another and care for the saints. Make a daily habit of grace that you plan to be generous. Everybody wants to be generous, but it doesn't happen without a plan. Friends, holiness matters to God. We take seriously the words of Genesis 6, how mankind rejected God by not pondering the path of their feet, and we would be wise listeners to hear their words, hear their mistakes, 
and adjust our lives accordingly. This brings us to the second point then of the judgment of God that comes as you reject God. The judgment of God. This is the bulk of the section here. 613 to 724. And as we walk through this, I want you to just hear the staggering weight and severity of God's judgment on sin. It might be easy to read a familiar passage, a bit like a flannel graph in Sunday school, and not actually in living color see what was happening. Look back at your copy of God's Word, and I'll just kind of jump down through several passages. Just hear the gravity, starting in chapter 6, verse 7. God says, I will blot out man from whom I have created from the face of the land. Drop down to verse 13. God says, I have determined to make an end of all flesh. Verse 17, I will bring a flood of waters upon the earth to destroy all flesh in which is the breath of life under heaven. Everything that is on the earth shall die. Drop down to chapter 7, verse 4. Every living thing that I have made, I will blot out from the face of the ground. And then to the end of chapter 7, starting in verse 21, I'll read down through 23. And all flesh died that moved on the earth. Birds, livestock, beasts, all swarming creatures that swarm on the earth and all mankind Everything on the dry land in whose nostrils was the breath of life died. He blotted out every living thing that was on the face of the ground, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens. They were blotted out from the earth. Only Noah was left and those who were with him in the ark. Friends, judgment takes seriously the holiness of God. Judgment takes seriously the holiness of God. Just see this picture. 40 days of driving rain from above and the earth opening up with floods from underneath. It's just the other night that the storm woke me up at two in the morning and it was a little scary. Just one night of driving rain. 40 days, 40 nights from above and from below. We're told the highest mountain in the entire earth was surpassed by water by 20 feet. Picture the scene here. Noah, his family on the ark, tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands, perhaps millions, billions, drowning. It's a hellish nightmare as the rain pours down and the ground opens up. It's as if in the flood, the world is made into a massive graveyard. There's a fairly stunning imagery here of creation, but of de-creation. Whereas initially there were chaotic waters that the Lord formed the dry ground out of, and it came up out of the waters, now the dry ground is sinking down into the waters. Picture of hopelessness. Whereas God initially saw that everything he'd made was very good, he now looks out and sees that it's all very corrupt. As mankind was created to live forever with God, he's now dying separated from God. This is important that you catch this. In 2 Peter 3, we're told 
that the judgment of the flood is meant to prepare us for and warn us of the eternal upcoming judgment in a real place called hell, where God's judgment on sin will be fully poured out. Just as this flood was real and his judgment was real, so the eternal judgment in hell will be real. It's a place of eternal conscious torment and punishment. You don't have to look very hard in today's world to find people, some professing the name of Christ, to deny the doctrine of hell for a teaching that feels more palatable. So don't take my word for it. Let me take you back to the scriptures and just tell you what the Bible says. Look back at Matthew 25. It's on the screen here, actually. We read, Then he will say to those on his left, Depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. These will go away into the eternal punishment. Mark 9 would call this an unquenchable fire. Revelation 14, we have on the screen as well, we read, The wicked will also drink the wine of God's wrath, poured out full strength into the cup of his anger, and he will be tormented with fire and sulfur. The smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever, and they have no rest, day or night." The flood tells us that God's judgment on sin is real and it warns us of a real, horrific judgment on sin that is to come. In the same passage in 2 Peter that warns of the reality of hell, we're also told that Noah was a herald of righteousness. That in that 120 years, he knew judgment was coming and so he went out and he told people, says, man, judgment is coming. Turn back from your sins. Repent. Romans 10 tells us that faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. See, we're told that God's judgment is both a consequence of sin and a threat to keep us from sin. And judgment leading to salvation is yes for those who don't know the name of Christ, that they would be saved, but it's also practiced within the church through a process of church discipline. It's designed for restoration from sin and the purity of the church. And just as God was slow in bringing judgment in Noah's day, so we are to be slow in church discipline. Nobody's rushing into this, but grievously professing Christians, members of churches, continue in blatant rebellion against God. And in that case, God has instituted a judgment to warn them. And the hope is they would be saved. Look at what is written in 1 Corinthians 5, 5. We read, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of his flesh so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. Friends, can I tell you as a pastor, that is a staggering and scary verse for me to read and to consider obeying. That unrepentant sin, blatant sin, rebellion against God, when that continues within God's church, we're commanded to hand an individual over to Satan for the destruction of their flesh 
so that the warning of judgment would be heard and their soul would be saved. And they would say, no, I don't want to go that way. I see where sin leads. I see where the rejection of God leads. And they would be restored. That's the goal. That's the hope that we pray for. The reality is this. When it comes to God's holiness and judgment on sin, we're tempted to overlook them, to bypass them, or to focus on something else. And in an age of tolerance and acceptance, we have to recognize, this is so important that we recognize, we're often shaped more by our culture than we are by the word of God. And when this happens, many heresies result and flow out of it. You drop the holiness of God and anyone can get into heaven. You find yourself embracing universalism. You drop church discipline, you lose the purity of the church, and the church is no longer a city on a hill, a light beckoning forth into the darkness. You drop judgment and and hell, and there's no need for an urgent message of repentance. And so while many continue to affirm the reality of hell, affirm the reality of divine judgment, I sometimes wonder if people really believe that because they don't seem to be evangelizing with any urgency. If this is really real, if it's really coming, you would tell somebody. You would warn them with urgency. Listen to what the prophet Ezekiel had to say. This is coming from the mouth of God to Ezekiel. He wrote down, When I say to a wicked person, you will surely die, God says that, and you, Ezekiel, do not warn them or speak out to dissuade them from their evil ways in order to save their life, that wicked person will die for their sin, and I will hold you accountable for their blood. Friends, those are sobering words. Yes, they're responsible for their sin. They will be punished for it but you will also be held responsible because you were sent to proclaim good news, to be as Noah was, a herald of righteousness, saying there is salvation in no other name under heaven except in this one name of Jesus Christ. Turn to him today. Bishop J.C. Ryle, some 200 years ago, said it quite well. He said, if I never spoke on hell, I should consider myself an accomplice of the devil, because he'd be allowing people to go on to judgment without ever warning them. Friends, take seriously the judgment of God. Don't be an accomplice of the devil. Who is it in your life that needs to be warned of the judgment to come? Look, you don't have to be a jerk about this. You don't have to be a raging street preacher that's screaming all sorts of things. I sat across the table from a guy just a couple of months ago, and I said, man, the Bible says that judgment is coming, and I love you, and I do not want that for you. Look somebody right in the eye. It's not some kind of a scriptural, biblical, Christianese sales pitch to get your check marks in heaven. Oh, just sit down and love people enough to say, brother, sister, friend, coworker, I love you. I don't want this for you. Please, I beg of you, turn to Jesus. Part of taking the judgment of God seriously is warning those who are standing in the way of impending doom. 
Penn Jillette is a, a famous comedian, a atheist, and he's got this little blurb on YouTube uh, where he, he talks about someone trying to evangelize him. And he said, basically, I respected that person so much because they at least actually believed what they said they believed. And they looked me in the eyes. He said, I wonder for people who say they believe in the reality of hell and judgment, but don't tell anybody, how much, this is his words, not mine, how much do you have to hate somebody to know that's coming and not warn them? But maybe this afternoon, maybe you're gonna grab that, that little placemat we talked about, but maybe you just ought to hop online and watch that little five-minute video from him. If you just pop into YouTube, A Gift of a Bible, that's all it's called, A Gift of a Bible, listen to what Pendulette said, and then go to God in prayer for those you know who don't yet know Christ and ask for his strength boldly proclaim the gospel. Friends, we must take seriously the judgment of God. And just as those in the time of Noah didn't take it seriously, we must learn from them and ourselves take it seriously. This brings us to the third point, the mercy of God. The mercy of God. Now, as you look at the screen, you might find it odd that the mercy of God cites the exact same verses as the judgment of God. Because in our minds, it feels like judgment and mercy are really opposed to one another. It's important that we know judgment doesn't negate the mercy of God in any way. No, God loves to show mercy. So you wonder, how can this be, Justin? You just spent this time explaining the flood and the doctrine of hell and divine judgment. How in the world can that go together with mercy? Let me remind you, the picture of rejection of God we saw in Genesis 6, utter destruction on the face of the earth. We compared it to a 10-mile wide tornado wreaking havoc throughout the world. And God gives a 120-year reprieve, an opportunity for repentance. It's not a quick-triggered judgment. It says, no, I'm going to give time. Hear the message from Noah, the herald of righteousness. We said that it would be like living in a day where Hitler, Stalin, and Putin, and Genghis Khan are all ruling at the exact same time. There's that much terror, and God's still 120 years to repent. Now you just think about the terror of living in such a world and have to wait 120 years. You think, man, that, God, you are too merciful. I don't want to live through that. I don't want my kids to live through that. I don't want my parents to live through that. And at the end of the 120 years, God graciously chooses to save Noah and his family. See, God doesn't get angry. He doesn't get enraged and then overlook the good like we would. Isn't that what we do? We get angry. We're filled with rage. You start to kind of boil over and you start not seeing the good and all you see is the bad. Boy, praise God, he's not like that. Because even as wickedness abounds, he looks down. Genesis 6, 8 and sees Noah. Look back at your copy of God's word. Genesis 6, 8 and 9. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. These are the generations of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation. Noah walked with God. You see, we again affirm that walking with God is the only path to life. Noah wasn't 
perfect. No, his life was marked by faith. He still had to offer sacrifices for his sins, but he had an active faith. Not a works-based faith, no, but works showing that he really did have faith in God. This is what Hebrews 11 tells us about Noah. Verse 7, by faith Noah, being warned by God concerning events as yet unseen, in reverent fear constructed an ark for the saving of his household. By this he condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. In other words, Noah wasn't saved because of his moral superiority. Noah wasn't saved because of his his Bible reading plan or his prayer plan or his generosity or any of those things. No, he was saved by faith, by humbly seeking mercy from God. Oh, and God loves to show mercy. The famous Old Testament passage, Noah's up on the mountain. This is in Exodus 33 and 34. And he asks God, he says, show me your glory. God says, you can't see my glory. It'll kill you if you do see it. So what I'll do is you turn aside and I'll pass by and my glory will be reflected as you come through and you'll be amazed by it. And when God speaks in the moment of his glory to see what shows you my glory so clearly, what does he point out? That I abound in mercy. I love to show mercy. You know what makes me so glorious? It's not my judgment. I don't love to judge people. I love to show mercy. Look at it on the screen, Exodus 34. This is what God says. He, he identifies himself. He says, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands of generations, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and children's children to the third and fourth generation. He's not saying that the sins of dad he's going to judge the kids for. No, he's comparatively saying, look, yes, I'm not going to clear the guilty, but I love to show mercy. And I show mercy to the thousands and thousands of generations. It's hundredfold more love and enjoyment from showing mercy. That's what I love to do. Isaiah 28 says that God's judgment is his strange and his alien work. He doesn't love to do that. Lamentations 3 says God doesn't afflict from the heart. James 2 tells us that mercy triumphs over judgment. So friends, reading the Bible well means that we see God serious about his holiness and he's going to judge sin, but he abounds in mercy. He loves to show mercy. It's it's as if we're quick-triggered. That kind of defines us. We're easily angered. We're easily frustrated. And we expect God to be the exact same way. Praise God, he's not like you. Part of the Christian life is stripping your view of God from being a projection of yourself. Like, we tend to think of it, I've got JV-level mercy, and he must have varsity-level mercy. Like, I do between-the-legs layups, he does between-the-legs dunks. Is not like that. He's fundamentally different from you. Our patience runs out. His grows longer. We don't have categories to accurately describe this, but Romans 5 actually says that when you sin, it doesn't start to use up his mercy, that his mercy actually grows deeper and there's more mercy. 
See, we don't have a category of human experience to explain this. He loves to show mercy. I think this is part of the reason that we're given the ark. See, the magnitude of God's mercy. See, God showed mercy on Noah and his family, eight people in all. But he could have saved them in a number of ways. He didn't need to use an enormous ark. Could have used a rowboat. Could have put his power on display and given them a, like, prototype hovercraft. How cool would that have been? Hop on these little dudes and just scoot around for a while. Like, he, he brought down manna from heaven in a miraculous way. Why couldn't he do that? He could have. But instead, he chooses to use a massive ark to demonstrate the abundance and the massiveness of his mercy. This ark that took probably between 55 and 75 years to build. It's big enough for two of every kind of bird, creeping thing, and animal. There's all that bit about the cubits. What does that mean? It's about 500 feet long, 50 feet tall, 75 feet wide. This room is about 40 feet tall. So think 25% taller than this room. More than one and a half football fields long, 75 feet wide. From a storage capacity standpoint, it's about what you could get into 450 semi-trailers. Scholars tell us you could fit 120,000 sheep in it. Abounding in mercy. Look at this huge boat as an image, a physical depiction of how much I love to show mercy. Ephesians 2.4 says that God is rich in mercy. Do you know that's the only thing the Bible says God is rich in? Rich in one thing, mercy. He loves to show mercy. Friends, here's what this means for you practically. It means the deepest region of guilt and shame in your life. It's not like a hotel that mercy might come to for a night. It's like your home that mercy comes and dwells in forever and can fully redeem and restore. There's no end to it. And at the cross of Calvary, where Jesus bled and died, we see all of these realities wondrously coming on display. God's holiness refuses to allow sinful man into his presence. His judgment is rightly poured out on sin. But because God loves to show mercy, he took the judgment on himself so it wouldn't fall on you and it wouldn't fall on me, but so that he could freely offer forgiveness and mercy. He loves to show mercy so much that he would take the judgment, though he didn't deserve any of it, so that he could show mercy. This is why we say that mercy and justice meet at the cross. As holiness matters to God. So I would just urge you this morning, consider your life. Consider the upcoming judgment for your sin, whether you think it's big or you think it's small. But don't just consider the judgment. No, forsake your sin and run from it and run to the open arms of Jesus that are rich in mercy. Let's pray. Father, we come to you this morning in prayer, acknowledging that we run from you, we, re 
reject you. We seek what we want. We define the good based on what looks good for us, not what on, based on what you've said. And we recognize that you must judge sin because of your holiness. And yet you love to show mercy. You are abundant in mercy, rich in mercy, quick to show mercy. We ask that your mercy would be real in our lives, that we would come to you seeking and finding mercy. We ask we would look to Jesus who took on our judgment so that we could receive mercy. And we would go forth and tell others who need to be warned of the judgment. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.